White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms for contemporary art. Today we have guest host Brian Leo in a conversation with artist, curator, and collector Kenny Schachter. Both are based in New York. You are listening to the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm Noah Becker. Hello, what day is it? Today is... uh, Sunday. Oh, yes, it's Sunday afternoon. Sunday, the 12th of November, 2023. Right, 2023. So uh, I'm sitting here with Kenny Schachter who I've met a few times over the last few years, and uh, I'm here on 16, or at 16 Morton Street. Could you tell us about the exhibit and the Morton Street Partners? Morton Street Partners are um, three guys that have a bizarre, kind of eclectic classic car dealership. I met one of the partners, Tom Hale, at one of my hoarder sales, funny enough. <clears throat> He's a collector. He came in with a writer, Judd Tully. We met, we immediately hit it off, he bought a couple of pieces, which was very nice. And they invited me to curate. They they opened up a hybrid space, which is really interesting because it's meant to be a real synergistic combination of... I mean, I have this theory, very non-hierarchical, very democratic, that anything with love and passion for me is art. And they approach cars in the same way I approach art. I don't care if it's a print, a photograph, a poster, a painting or a car, because I love industrial design was my gateway drug to art. So I curated a show just shy of two years ago, a massive group show with artists, disparate artists from all over the globe, every continent, more or less. And now this is the second version. The idea, it's called Kenny's List, and it was a play on uh, Craigslist. And I mean, I don't know how far you want to mine the territory, but... I had some drug and alcohol issues that lasted, oh, for about 40 years. And I recently kicked them, thank God, about five years ago. If you have any questions or if I can help you in that regard, I'm happy to share my insights because my life is absolutely turned around in terms of getting three times the work done in half the time, and it's twice as good, I hope. But anyway, so I had all this, I had this storage, which was from early 90s, until I moved to the UK in 2004. And like me, the storage reflected the state of disarray and chaos that my life was in. In other words, there was a storage with loads of crap, much of which I didn't know, it wasn't even inventoried. So a lot of it was just listed as unauthored stuff. Anyway, so I told the storage company, fill up an 18 foot truck to the brim, bring it over, and then I would just play it by ear and Kenny's List was meant to, I, I had some help from Lucian Smith with his Serving the People Foundation. We set up a website and as I was unpacking stuff and it was a broad array of few steps above junk, some junk, but then I found like a decade's worth of my own work, which I had largely, I thought it was, I mean, I didn't know a lot of it existed. I vaguely remember making most of it, but I thought it was all destroyed and discarded. So that was really a revelation because I've sort of shifted my career over the past, since 2018, I did an impromptu tongue-in-cheek retrospective in the vague, lightest sense of the term, which was in the attic of Joel Messler's rental gallery in East Hampton before he began to pursue his art career more exclusively. And... After that, I pretty much did the same. I got really sick and tired of being an investigative journalist. Some would say gossip writer, which I hate the term, but I uncovered a lot of information. And I love kind of like this Robin Hoodian notion of like stealing information from rich power mongers in the art world and sharing it with people and helping to kind of dispel um, all the hidden veils of opaqueness and politics and shrouds of secrecy in the art market. And I did that for, for, for quite a long time. 
But in the end, that became a really significant platform in the same way NFTs became a platform for me to get my, my art is art. I've, the first digital video that I ever exhibited was in 1993 in a show called I Was Born Like This. In a, in a, before pop-up existed, we used to call them hit and run shows or guerrilla shows. So I basically came into contact with a lot of the artists I used to work with at that time, like Alfredo Martinez. We have a long history, mostly support, a little bit checkered when he tried to shoot me with a gun with blanks in it. And yeah, was, it, that at, was that at an art fair or something? That was at the Gram the first iteration of the Gramercy Park Art Fair, and he came in and assumed this pose like he was Dirty Harry and pulled the gun. There was one other person in the room, the explosion went off, woman screamed, a blood-curdling scream. I looked down and there was a puddle in my lap, and I didn't know if it was piss, blood, or margarita. They did have room service, it was in a hotel, so mm -hmm. I took full advantage and was completely wasted the whole time. Thankfully, it was uh, Margarita, although I wasn't too happy about wasting it. He gave me the gun, and that was the end of that. And then I went on to exhibit his work for on and off in many curatorial projects I did over the years. So I found this whole body of my work, and it was really, I mean, it was, it was really great. I was really excited about it because I hadn't seen this stuff for, in some cases, the work was 30 years old. And because I've recently, I mean, because I, I began embedding my own artworks, videos and 2D manipulated digital works into my writing because the art world really sucks still. It's, in the beginning, it wasn't as money central as it is now, but it was always exclusionary, uh, less than welcoming at best. And yeah, just very, very, very inaccessible. That's the main thing. So when I was curating shows throughout the 90s, literally for over a decade until I split to the UK, I had a very set philosophy of trying to, op I mean, there was a deep, deep recession that lasted from 91 to 95, six. And I mean, I was, there were much fewer galleries in New York at the time. There were like two that, was, that would entertain exhibiting the work of non-affiliated artists. And I was one of them. I mean, I was I was uh, in uh, at Rutgers Space and Growth School of the Arts in the early '90s, and I remember I coming up there. here. Yeah, um, I also noticed Ken Landauer was one of the artists that oh, you yes. showed. He was my BFA thesis professor. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, um, I think he worked for Dia. He made um, this giant table and chairs that I exhibited. Okay. Like think big. Um, so yeah, like I remember visiting like Exit Art and, and Jeffrey yes, I curated a show at Exit Art in the nineties. Space and yeah, those were the days. Um, so yeah, the nineties. Uh, I I I don't think I got a chance to see your exhibits in the nineties and. Um, well, you're seeing one now that yeah. has the distinct flavor of one. Right. So they were always. There was a curator from White Columns, Bill Arning, mm -hmm. and he prided himself on doing a thousand or eleven hundred studio visits per year. My joke was with my mosquito-like attention span, I would rather meet artists that I liked. And I'm not, I was never been, I've never been an object-oriented curator as much as an artist-oriented person. So I would always make up these themes. They were abstract almost or, and, and loosely based on social political issues. And then every artist would all but ignore it. And I didn't care because I wasn't gonna say I want this object I wanted the artist to exhibit what the artist wanted to, what the artist felt most strongly about. Anyway, so those shows went on for 15 years before I took off. I exhibited the work of many artists that are quite well known now. Not yeah, when, when did you show Joe Bradley's work? That wasn't the 90s, right? It was like no, I showed, Joe Bradley wasn't even making, I mean, yeah. I showed the first paintings he ever made in his life in 02, 03. Mm -hmm. I gave him his first one person show, but Wade Guyton before he had a printer, Fred Tomaselli, when he first landed here from California. Cecily Brown's first group show ever in 96. Rachel Harrison for a decade. We couldn't give, oftentimes we threw away in the street giant installations of mm -hmm. hers. Um, yeah. What about in the 90s with that, wasn't that the British wave? Was it like Tracy Emin and Damien Hirst? Was there... That like... was, you know, I lived in the UK for 15 years. And the thing is, that they were like two parallel universes. So at the time... Before the recession, which was dwarfed the 2008 Great Recession, this was much worse. Mm. And just not only was there no money in the contemporary art, contemporary art never even entered an auction evening sale until 96. 
So when I started, A, there was a recession, and B, contemporary art was never seen as a profit center to the extent that it would be. No contemporary artwork had ever been auctioned in an evening sale until 96, where Kiki Smith actually outshone Jeff Koons. She made 260000 He made about 230000 And Robert Gober and Matthew Barney. I always say the best collector in the world, I've incorporated it into many lectures, was this Boston heart surgeon who operated a foundation to foster surgeries for children with heart problems. And he needed art so voraciously, so badly, he stole it right from the coffers that was earmarked for the kids. So when he went to jail, they decided to stick 11 works in an evening sale with impressionist and modern art. And that gave birth to the contemporary art market that we know today, which ended up surpassing the modern and impressionist market pretty much as the main focus of the market. But anyway, at that time, people did things for all the right reasons. We loved art, whether they, no one ever even had a notion of making money from contemporary art. The market didn't constrict at the time, it evaporated, but they were great, like always. There's always gonna be great artists and great curators and uh, a few collectors left that haven't flogged stuff within five minutes that belong in a vitrine in a natural history museum, but there was just a lot of great activity. And I curated shows for artists that needed a break. And for me, an emerging artist could be 100 or 20. It's just someone who's underappreciated and non-represented. So that was really the, the, the program that I had. And mainly because I never took an art class in my life until I was teaching one, I wanted, I was started making art 30, uh, 35 years ago. And because I never took an art class in my life, I studied philosophy, political science, wrote a thesis on the Middle East situation, which there's no need to get into that, but I read the Quran, studied Arab-Israeli politics, and my thesis in 84 was no peace did I foresee in my lifetime, because Arabs and Jews are like brothers. Okay. Fighting is human nature, and they seem to do a good job of it. And it's sad because, you know, it's tragic. It's not sad, but like people should just get on with their lives and coexist peacefully without the threat but I want to skip that topic and focus yeah. on the art. And art for me is like art, when I discovered it and stumbled upon it, it turned my life upside down. It imbued my life with meaning and nothing's changed to this day. I love to teach. I yeah. still write, but I'm focusing on writing about art. You're an artist, collector, curator, writer, educator. And yes. uh, how do you balance all these roles? I know that you like you love teaching. I've heard you say that and uh, keeps you on your toes. and. Um, informed. I um, teach to learn. Like mm -hmm. once I finished, like in, I went to law school, but I hate lawyers, hated them then, hate them more now that I've actually had to employ a few of them with all due respect to the lawyers out there. But, uh, well, what came, first? I just wanted to hide because I had a philosophy degree in undergraduate. So there were no mm -hmm. jobs. So I went to school, but then I started working full time. Three quarters into the first year, I quit school and just took exams and then taught myself the bar exam. And that was like mental boot camp and the discipline of studying to such a degree of intensity on my own taught me the kind of, yeah, discipline to, to learn. Then, uh, then I realized when I stumbled into the art world in 88, formally, I had never, not only did I not go to a gallery throughout my entire childhood, but I didn't know galleries existed that you could own Art. I thought I went to museums only in college, assumed like an idiot, idiot savant that art went from the artist to the museum. Then when I went to Warhol's estate sale, procrastinating between jobs, that was the first taste I got that there was a that you could own art, period. Right. I think that Jake mentioned there's a life lifer poster out there. And yes, that was like kind of in like a key moment. in um... the key moment was Warhol's estate sale, because okay. not only Warhol's stuff. And God knows he was the hoarder extreme with his cookie jars, jewelry, and collection. I mean, they were Basquiat's 25 grand a piece. He had traded with Hockney and Johns and Rauschenberg and all these amazing artists. Mm -hmm. But Sotheby's was gearing up for this yearly spring sale. And that was the first taste I ever got that art could be sold. Did you, so did you start collecting and then curating I was. Shows? I had no money. 
Okay. Dude, <laughs> I passed the bar, so I ended up with a part-time legal job. Then when I, I went to a, so then I saw an ad in the newspaper. So I had studied German philosophy and I saw an ad in the newspaper for, I saw Twombly in the East Wing of the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., where I went to college. And I saw an ad in the paper for Joseph Boy, Sigmar Polka, and Cy Twombly. Mm -hmm. Prints and multiples, which I, to this day, people say art is expensive. That's a complete misconception because you buy art on Instagram, you buy art from art schools, you buy prints, you buy posters. There's wildly accessible ways to this day and has been from day one to buy art for a couple hundred bucks, great art. And this, this exhibit, which is unfortunately ending a month early or three weeks early, it ends Wednesday but you could buy stuff for a hundred bucks, and I think that's the way it should be. And uh, <clears throat> then, when I saw that they were, I went to this gallery, Herschel and Adler Modern, and I saw a Cy Twombly print that actually had a crayon drawing of a mushroom incorporated into the print with some taped collage. And I just thought, fuck, I need this, and I need it promptly. And I went, I had no money. I just started working. I passed the bar somehow miraculously through the haze of drugs and alcohol. And I went to Chase Manhattan Bank. I probably was wearing pretty much what I'm wearing today as we sit here, lots of vintage polyester, Adidas and a t-shirt. And I went to the bank, asked them for five grand and they said, for what? And I said, for art. And they looked at me like a dog sideways that doesn't understand the command. They threw me out of the bank. I was a part-time lawyer and I had the manager of the bank called call I got the loan and then I became a dealer to dealer dealer so I can't sell crack to a crackhead I like art professionals because they've made the leap of faith to love art without needing hand-holding to determine what they like and what they don't like so I immediately began buying art and then selling it to other professionals selling it to a few of the lawyers in the law firm I was working for and then I realized, like, I could teach anyone off the street post-war art in six months. A lot of people don't read, don't read magazines or books about art. They look at the ads. And uh, I realized if I want to have a life in art, which I most assuredly did, I would need to learn the fundamentals. What happened since it came off the wall of the cave, which is, takes a little more concerted effort to study. I rocked up to the new school, 1992 went to the dean's office and said, I'd like to teach. And he's like, what's your art, art background? And I said, well, I don't have one. I have a graduate degree, not the one you're looking for. They hired me on probation because I had curated a half a dozen shows at that point of emerging art in these hit and run pop-up spaces. I got a job teaching and I taught a class called Marcel Duchamp in the world of conceptual art. And it was like, this is accounting method in the car industry where they only have enough parts to build the amount of cars that are sold. So I would read, I bought Jansen's book of art history. I would read three chapters and I, I was overweight, alienated, miserable child that stuttered. I couldn't articulate up until I was even in grad school. I had trouble saying like D for instance in public. Now I never shut the fuck up and that is part of the reason because I literally was half catatonic. My mother died when I was 13. My dad was absolutely negative, sarcastic, not kind. Hope he's not listening because we tried to try and made up with him at 88. It was not easy and took a lot of therapy. But anyway, so uh, I realized I, I, I would get the big beer, drink the beer before the class, teach the three chapters and start over. And in a way, even though it sounds ridiculous because I've been doing this for 33, four years, I'll always have the mentality of an outsider because I am. And I, I never take anything for granted. I teach to learn. I've never, I've lectured a thousand times without exaggeration every week or two all over. I'm a professor at University of Zurich, but I've taught at uh, NYU School of Visual Arts, uh, everywhere, Art Institute of Chicago, a series of lectures last year. Yale, blah, blah, blah. And again, like I don't, I've never repeat myself in the same way that I write to have a deeper, more in-depth experience to mundane things that I had to do to make a living, going to stupid art fair in Miami and doing all of these disparate things to hustle, which I'm still, I mean, I had a good run with NFTs for a year and a half, that's over. 
and I'm back to doing what I always did. Any means necessary to make a living doing what I have to do, which is continue to spend every day of my life thinking about art, looking at art, touching art, breathing art. So that's it. I never stopped teaching since then. Never repeated myself with my lectures. Always trying to learn because art is like being a doctor or any other profession where you're charged with the responsibility to be apprised of what's happening. And that's it. So that first class that you taught at the new school was a class on Duchamp? Well, it was on Duchamp via, I mean, I found for me, I mean, reading about Hogarth in, I guess, uh, 18th century. I can't even remember the exact years of his life. There's not much total recall going on in my mind. But I found like, because I had such a bizarre perspective on things, I found someone like Hogarth conceptual. So it was a bit random. I mean, Duchamp was the main jumping off point, but I went back, like I said, since the, the art came off the cave wall and tried to just take an unorthodox approach about my interpretation of events that led to where we are at that time, which was already 30 years ago. Right. So, I mean, would you say Duchamp is a huge influence on your work? I mean, I see it as like just the conceptual art that you, you have concepts, you um, outsource and fabricate, have, have a lot of your, your I, I imagine that your videos on Instagram are, are fabricated also, right? I or work outsourced. with, one, I've had one, I have, I mean, I've never been able to, <laughs> I'm a little special, as you would say, in terms of relating to other people. I have a husband and a wife. Gabrielle Monroy and Casper Strzok that have been helping me for, for decades. And that is uploading. I have a really extensive archive online, kennyschachter.art. And the videos, I either I used to act in them and film them. John Kelsey, who was part of a collective called Rena Spaulding and has a gallery, he was my... Uh, he shot the analog videos and I typically acted but never starred. Like I starred from obscured my identity. It was always the back of me or some other weird angle. And then Jonathan Horowitz, who's a wonderful artist, who's now has a collaborative piece with Rob Pruitt at 303 Gallery. He's a great video maker. He was my editor. And then Ricky Albender, who paints these text paintings. He often helped me with various digital stuff. So for me, I have not veered one degree since since the first art I ever made. A lot of it did entail video stuff, but unlike a lot of people that are as long as the teeth in the teeth as I am, i.e. old, I have always embraced change and technological innovation, which is the art world. I thought before I got into the art world professionally, I had this notion, which was misguided to say the least, that everyone was drinking absinthe, hanging from the chandelier and going to orgies, thinking of like Van Gogh's ear and it's, whatever, the cutting off of it. Anyway, yeah. the art world is the most conservative business. Well, I mean, you, than, were, you I was were in the working, fashion were, world. You were working with video in the, in the 90s. Oh, like, yeah. You were doing, like, post, I did digital. modernist like, media, right? And then you're still. I mean, I found these digital prints from 94 and 95 that I made in New York, shipped off to an exhibition in London. And I couldn't believe, like, I found that. Not only did I find these two computer prints from 1995, I would say, they were printed on thick archival watercolor paper. And then I painted various elements on them. One is River Phoenix in his coffin when he overdosed at the Viper Room, the club he owned with Johnny Depp. The other one was this Mexican singer called Selena, whose manager was so obsessed with her, she shot her. And they were both, because my mother died of cancer incrementally over the course of over a year, I got to, as a child, get this really unpleasant close-up taste of death and it, my whole life has been couched in that experience since and I used to make a lot of depictions of people either shot died murderers all these fun things and anyway to find these pieces from that period of time in such absolute impeccable condition was really heartening and and surprising because I thought this work was gone so what is contemporary art I mean I'm not 
a classicist. I'm not a carver. I can't. I don't even like the smell of paint, the feel of paint. But for me, yeah. Well, you know, like the so the videos I was referring to on Instagram, like the, these the, animations. The, yeah, the, I have the, the little jabs. My attention span uh, is too short. Damien Hirst, like the um, this like twenty five of the this modernist. I mean, he's using modernists, but I mean, right now they're like all those videos of just him using oil. Because the grass is greener. He's a brilliant conceptual sculpture, mm-hmm. but that just wasn't enough. He should just fucking stop throwing millions of dollars of paint at ready-made paintings that his assistants make and do what he could do. But the, he wants to be... I mean, even Richard Prince, who I revere, um, I have such enormous, profound respect for him. But he's, he's another, like, a conceptual artist. But now he has an exhibition at Joe Named, Named Contemporary, of paintings and, it's, and drawings. And it's like, I know what I am and what I'm not. I was fabricating paintings, and I think that's kind of gross to like, I was engaging um, Chinese studio pr- practice to make my paintings. Now I'm using robots, which makes more sense. But for me, I'm not an NFT artist, that's ridiculous. I'm not a technologist. I love, contemporary art is a reflection of the social, political, economic, and technological times we live in, and that's what I am, that's what I do. So for me, it would make no sense not to employ, deploy technology because how many, our life is absolutely dictated by our relationship to the telephone, the computer, period. I saw it, I'm so old that in the 70s, the only computer that you could buy for home usage was a Heath kit, even before the first Apple was this, you'd have to buy a kit and build it yourself. And the genius of Wozniak and Jobs was to make a ready-made computer that was fit for the home. And I was involved, I just, I got a computer when I was in law school and, and in 1983, and I just typed over like 1,100 pages of notes. And it sounds silly, but like word processing was a revolution in, in forming and formulating a paragraph and writing in the same way that Photoshop was a redefinition of the photograph, in the same way that ChatGPT and Dolly and Midjourney are total revolutions and blockchain are, gonna, are nev- always going to be with us and, and, and significant parts of creativity and artists are opportunistic. They grab what's before them and that's what's before us right now. So for me, the technology is as much as a form of self-expression. What is art anyway? Self-expression and communication. So I just made an installation in a museum in Austria where I made a classroom. Joseph Boy said teaching is the only formidable, lasting aspect of his entire output throughout his career, teaching. So for me, I've been through a lot of crap. I lost one of my kids five years ago. I've had addiction problems. I've had loss. I've had abuse as a child. Not that I'm going to, a lot of people suffered a lot worse than me, but inspiring other people, helping other people. I'm a thesis advisor. I mentor kids. Anyone who hears this, you can test me because many do. As long as you say hello and please, you can ask me any advice or help. And if it's within my power, within reason, I will help you because that's my obligation. My obligation is to spend a whole life in art and then spend the rest of my life or what's left of it, probably not that much with all the stress I'm under, uh, to help people and impart whatever information I have. And the art world to this day, it's grown more in the past 20, I'm really talking fast, it's grown more in the past 25 years than the previous 250 with social media was a fucking huge explosion. We used to have to send little photographic slides to communicate an image mm-hmm. and you had to be in New York or in, in Cologne because there was no Berlin. London was always a much smaller, like you mentioned yeah, well, the YBAs. I remember before JPEGs of the slides, yeah, put like submitting slides. Yes, and, there, um, there was no crossover. Back garbage. to your initial question because now I have the capacity to recall. Uh, to some extent, there was no crossover between the early YBAs because they had their little scene and we had our scene and there wasn't much um, spillover in those two sectors of because there were less means of communication. And yeah. So your installation at uh, was Francisco... Carolinum in Linz, Museum. Austria. That uh, exhibit runs until January? End of January. And we're doing a book right now, which I'm just absolutely oh, yeah. thrilled about. Wait, isn't a book out already? The, the, NF, the first. I did a book NFT on digital book? art, and that's a collaboration with a, with a historian from Cambridge and the Courtauld Institute. And 
he wrote about the history of, of NFTs and digital art. And I just wrote about my, how digital art has impacted my career over the past three years. So you, you exhibited with uh, Nigel Draxler um, at Basel, right? Was that the first uh, NFT display? That was, yes, that, uh, that was Basel? the first NFT that ever went into an art fair, period. You curated uh, I was show? in it and I curated it. So, and then I did another one in Miami. We did a, a Cologne art fair. But I mean, I think if I could just, sorry, interfere a little bit, but the interesting part the salient part was like the gallery sent me a DM and they asked me, can you help us curate an NFT show when NFT first popped? And I said, I won't help you do it. Like I'm gonna contradict myself probably seven more times before we're done. I said, I won't tell you how to curate it, but I'll curate it. So this was a gallery, the owner of which Christian Nagel has had a conceptual art gallery for 30 years. He was best friends with Colin Deland, who's one of my heroes, and Pat Hearn, and this whole, like, you know, the firmament of the commercial conceptual art world at the time in the early 90s. They moved from, first he had a gallery on Park Avenue South with Lisa Spellman from 303. Then the gallery community moved to the East Village before it made its way to Soho. And Christian is a curmudgeon, grumpy, German guy, and he scared the crap out of me. Like, literally, I wouldn't even go see him in an art fair and ask him how much something cost because he was just foreboding and he scared me. And in the end, I responded to this, um, what I thought was the assistant from the gallery, and said, I'll, I'll curate the show. And, and I, little did I know, but it was, and, he, and they said, we'll get back to you. And it was him that I was communicating with. But the key part is that from that experience, and I curated a show, you would never know it was a digital art show, nor especially an NFT show. It was a show. It was installation. It had painting, sculpture, photography, everything, but they were all derived from digital files. And that led to my now representation by the gallery at, I mean, that started like when I was 58 or something. And to think that at this, from tenacity, like the, if I could impart any, advice to anybody getting started don't take no for an answer don't fucking people call me like how can i get represented by a gallery in new york fuck you how can i get represented by a gallery in new york right now i can't i don't have a good art market i had a run a brief run selling ten thousand nfts in a year and a half but that's gone and i could care less nothing will change in the day-to-day -day life i lead which is reading writing and there was a TV show, a doc, when I was a kid, reading, writing, and reefer about the detrimental effects of weed. And I could attest to that because I'm experienced in that department. But I make art, and I read about art, and I love art, and that's it. So, so selling yeah. the 10,000 <laughs> NFTs, was that the 2021, 2022? Yes. Yeah. That was, yep. And then the post-NFT concept... Um, that's your term, right? I coined that dumbass term. It's tattooed. I, I have my, it's tattooed I have my on my interpretation of it. But it's I, tattooed on my arm. And then I was speaking to a friend about how the the NFT space popped up. It, it started around 2017-ish. It began in earnest end of 2020. That's when I jumped on board. And then went full full force in 20, the like 2021 to the middle of 2022. And my theory, well, NFT isn't, like when I first started, there was no, you had a, like people were doing the greatest projects. When I was working with all of these artists like Rachel Harrison and Alfredo and Joe Bradley was a bit later, but even then, like money never entered our consciousness. It was art from the get-go. And uh, I, I lost all of that. Like when I left to go to the UK, I began curating as one of the only curators of contemporary art. When I left in 04, I got so fucking bored of everything. Every, I became complacent. And there was, instead of like two to six galleries, there was a great art dealer called Feature Hudson, one name dealer from Chicago. Not only, did he, not only was he the only one to look at slides besides like exit art, uh, he would write crits on the, on the slides that he would get. Most people would literally take the envelope of slides and throw in the garbage. And by the time I left in 04, there was 500 galleries showcasing contemporary art. And I just got fed up and tired. And in the end, I just met Zaha Hadid and began a practice of like 
um, commissioning design objects and curating shows with Zaha's work and the hybrid between design, architecture, and, um, and, and art. So, yeah, I, I, for me, so when I first stumbled into NFTs, because I had always made the crap, someone told me about, digi- about NFT, I couldn't get my arms around what it even, how do you sell art that has no material substance? But then let me just say yeah. that um, I, like somebody, I, had, I started minting a bunch of NFTs with Nifty Gateway. I made four grand the first time and I was bewildered. I was so ecstatic. It was wonderful. I, never, I found a new audience to patronize the things that I had been doing my whole life. And from there, I, ha- I did it another foray into the space with the same company and I ended up selling an enormous amount, more than I ever would have dreamt. And then because this platform called Nifty Gateway, it's kind of a weird structure where they own the private key. I mean, I'm not gonna get into the technology, but somebody gave me an Ethereum. It was like $1,600 with no strings attached. So I would, I would independently mint my own art. And NFTism for me was a sense of community that didn't exist. I hadn't seen that since the 90s. People helping each other, people collaborating, people communicating. And yeah, these wonderful things that had largely gone missing when art became uh, commodified to the extent it did. But then like literally less than a year and a half later, the NFT world aped the absolute most corrupt, hideous practices of the art market. And then I came, and they, everyone was doing these. I mean, people say the art market is unregulated and rife with, with crime. Bullshit. I mean, there's like 160 laws. Somebody mentioned uh, Georgina Adam in a book and a seminar that apply to any given art transaction, things about fraud and misrepresentation and various statutes and codes. Art, there's more crime at Goldman Sachs during lunchtime than in the art market in a year. And in crypto, man, that is a cesspool. That is the worst. I mean, I've, been, I've had my wallet robbed. And then I was just talking to a friend and this idea of post-NFTism came into my head. And then I just took a pen and wrote post over my NFTism tattoo on my arm, which remains among the more embarrassing of the tattoos I have. And so then I just got disillusioned, like with NFTs, and I just I started selling the shit that I was selling for between three and twenty grand. I started to sell for five and ten dollars on Tezos, which was environmentally sound crypto um, currency. And I tell you, the joy and the satisfaction of finding another human being that wanted to buy what I was making, whether it was five dollars, ten dollars, or twenty thousand dollars, was all the same. And I continued doing what I'll do day in and day out, which is make art and love art. Yeah, for me, the post-NFTism is like kind of after the uh, the bubble burst, um, the 2021-2022 kind of uh, mania. And I think that just like a lot of artists are picking up iPads and Procreate and finding an, you know a, a medium to communicate in and and create digital art that they can make unique and doesn't matter you know what if it sells for whatever 100%. Price, just, you know? First of all the crash which affected me my income went down dramatically that was the best thing that ever happened to NFTs get the froth out get the scumbags out or a cleansing which is, was absolutely spectacular. And let me tell you, blockchain is here to stay. NFTs are not going anywhere. There's been already pockets of big successes. And in the same way that Instagram, which I was so, I, I just really wanted to cancel my account uh, in the last two days because with this degree of hatred that is literally rocking the world right now, I find the degree of public hostility and, and, and lack of tolerance, lack of manners, lack of empathy is, getting epi- is, is reaching epidemic form. So like I posted a video when the people first started vandalizing paintings to protest against the environment. I made a video about that and... I posted it, I don't know, a year ago. It was, humor is a defense mechanism. If it wasn't for humor and art, again, I would be dead. 
after losing my son, I have three other kids. He was my life. My kids are my life. My kids are my only solace besides art. They are the closest I will ever get to regaining any sense of happiness to be with them. And uh, I find like when I reposted this, I was making fun of these fucking people. How does that help anybody use less oil and reduce their carbon footprint to see someone glue their hand to a fucking Van Gogh painting? Most recently, it was even more tragic because they bashed the Velasquez with a hammer. That doesn't, that makes me want to get a Hummer. That doesn't make me want to like, you know, be more resourceful with, with what's around me. And to say that NFTs, for instance, is so detrimental to the environment is losing sight of wooden crates that have single uses for, envi- for, for, for customs reasons and various reasons and bubble wrap and art fairs where you can, I mean, if you just went to all the galleries in, in your front yard in New York, instead of going to fucking Basel, Miami, or getting on a plane to go to Hong Kong or wherever else, it's all here under our noses. And like COVID, I got COVID three times. I never, I have long-term COVID. My kid had it really badly. I don't know anyone who died from it, but God knows well over a million did. That was a tragedy. But at the same time, there was like, it was time to take stock. And, and, and I was always late. I never put a watch on again after COVID. I mean, I was always late, but I was never going anywhere except to another stupid ass art fair or auction. And then I started, I, st- I was slated to teach a studio class at School of Visual Arts. It was a, a lecture from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. every Tuesday. And I was meant to do crits every week. Right before class started, I got a call and said, you have to use this thing called Zoom. I was like, what the fuck is that? And then they told me, and you had to use an intranet. So you had to use like a school-specific uh, system to access the Zoom and the class and, the, and your syllabus. And I chickened out. Like I was like, I can't do this. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how it works. I feel uncomfortable going. I just felt scared. Mm-hmm. That's fear. That's the thing that keeps people recoiling from technology, from anything new, that creates anger, hostility, bad feelings and then right before when I told them I wouldn't do it and then I just thought like what the fuck is wrong with me this is against the very grain of my whole career and I said I would do it and I ended up having a whole semester's worth of zoom classes at 9 10 11 12 1 2 six hours straight I mean I'm not terribly good with numbers that's why I'm in art pictures and uh it was the best thing ever I mean just to be so industrious to have kids working in their studios and engaging. I mean, I got these students, a lot of them were from, from outside the US and English, English was not even their second language and to, to, to put people on the spot, to make them share, to make them engage and to like say, I mean, it should be an assignment in every art school, like make art with what's in your apartment without having to go to the supply store. And it was, we watch documentaries nice. together. It was just fantastic. So I think like for me, it was such a kind of paradigm shift in my way of thinking, which was get off the fucking hamster wheel, look at art and think about art and read and stop chasing nothing. And, you know, that was bad. But I think that, okay. yeah. Whatever. Well, considering <laughs> the possibility of future lockdowns and the growing interest in the metaverse like Decentraland and Sandbox, how do you envision the future of art, particularly in the context of NFTs and virtual experiences? I mean, do you think we're going to have avatars and NFTs will be in the virtual museums? I, I do think that, you know, COVID was a little test. I think that, you know, with five, with the advancement of 5G and all of AI and they want, they want, a, they, they want, a, popu, they want a percentage of the population to stay at home and use the tech and yes. have avatars. I, I mean, mean so- look, I remember when I never really used Amazon to buy shit. I just go to a fucking store because I need immediate gratification. Then I bought a garbage can when I was in London. And the garbage can came and it was like a thimble. It's like you couldn't even fit a fucking crumpled piece of paper in it. And then I just thought this is a perfect metaphor for the difference between living a life digitally, online. I, I mean, we all live digital lives. But it has to be a hybrid. It has to be a commingling of the visual experience of standing before something and then engaging in other medium media and 
you know, the only word today that has more negative, negative connotations than NFT, those three cursed upon letters, is metaverse. Everyone hates the fucking metaverse. When they released, when they had a press conference for the new goggles, they didn't even dare mention the metaverse. I just did my second major metaverse project with Zaha Hadid Architectural Practice, which I was just working with a scholar on a book about Zaha and my relationship with her. She became my closest friend. And uh, her practice is the only architectural practice that's not survived, not only survived the demise of its founder, but mushroomed, flourished. And Patrick Schumacher, who's a brilliant architect and theoretician who wrote a book on parametrics, the theoretical computational component of, of design, He's probably the only architect on record that that f- his architects must use AI. It's it's a necessity in their practice. Anyway, we did our second metaverse together. It's not ideal, but it's a it's an alternative. It's not replacing, substituting, or anything of the sort. Imagine if you're a practicing architect instead of doing shitty kitchen renovations and bathrooms. You could have a whole new income stream to pursue a theoretical practice by doing digital spaces. So for me, for digital, I'm always thinking about what's next. I never like to look back. I had this museum show. I couldn't. Have, I had complete freedom to show to go back, even though I didn't know the first ten years of my stuff existed. But I only wanted to show recent work and new things. And my theory is that we need better dedicated devices for the display of digital art for digital art to assume any kind of parity with painting and drawing and sculpture. So, I mean, painting is by far the most coveted form of art in collecting in the marketplace because why? It's portable, transportable, easy to store and easy to flog easy to sell. The thing is that digital art is even easier because it doesn't even exist. I did a book for my show at Noggle Draxler that was two years ago in January and the name of the book came from an essay that Saskia Draxler who co-owns the gallery with Christian Noggle and she's a theoretician first and foremost and she wrote an essay called Art Without Substance which I just love the negative double connotation but you could buy and sell a whole group collection of works without even taking up any physical space. The thing is that digital art is as physical as bronze. It takes up space. It takes up memory. It takes up hard drive space. And it does have a physical presence. In any event, the next thing, as far as I'm concerned, right now there's, not, there's no such thing as a real holographic projection. So for me, what's they, they've had various artists. You've seen maybe Tupac and Biggie like going on tour. As far as I know, they're both still dead. They use this really like a 100-year-old technology called Pepper's Ghost, which uses literally smoke and mirrors without the smoke. It uses projection onto a mirror, and it reflects this virtual image that exists in space. And for me, what I foresee in the next three to five years, I've done a lot of groundwork and research into 3D screens. I'm interested in the next 3D technology that doesn't necessitate wearing these dumbass goggles. Now, idiotic Mark Zuckerfuck, who controls so much aspects of it's so ridiculous, the concentration of power in these like seven people that have Google, Amazon, and, and, and Meta. I mean, in any event, Soon, like now they just did a collaboration with Ray-Ban with, with AI glasses, and soon you'll be able to project a 3D image, take it on the road, take it to your hotel, take it to wherever you're traveling, and project what looks for all intents and purposes like a sculpture in the middle of a space. So that for me would be, I mean, the future is digital. No one, people will, for me, like what came first were prints and drawings, and I love paper. I still collect a limited edition prints. I that's like one of the last things I bought. Uh, and I think that we will see advancements 
in coexisting with technology so it becomes much more visceral. And, and like right now I have a few video works in my house, some of mine, some are other people's, and I have it so they're plugged into the light. So when I turn on the light, the video goes on. It must be as simple to enjoy as a drawing. And every day I put my little grubby fingers on a piece of art on my desk, on my wall. I'm always readjusting, moving a little centimeter here, a little millimeter there. Art for me, like I don't, I, I joke because I'm very materialistic, but on the other hand, I consider myself ascetic, which is like self-denial and, and, and not being wedded. First of all, we don't own art, art owns us. We have charged with an obligation to preserve it, not to have it destroyed. Amazingly, with four kids, I was the one who always broke the art, not my kids. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I just think that uh, art will become, the technology will improve, the way of living with stuff will, will become more conducive to, to this experience, which will give it another dimensionality than it has right now. So yeah. Yeah, as far as like holographic, uh, holographic uh, 3D art, I, I would imagine advertisers will be at the forefront of that, like kind of like Blade Runner. Or they like often just, are. Right? So, <laughs> like Times Square will be filled. With, of course, yeah, like, that'd be uh, crazy. Yeah, so that's cool. I like that. I like that idea. And at the same time, I'll always have a drawing. I'll always have an object. Oh, yeah, so like I was saying, I consider myself aesthetic in as much as in the same way back when I started in 90, my first show I curated was 90 of German art called German Paper. In the same way, like art for me is like, I don't want to say it's a tool because that's so dismissive, but art for me is, a, it's like, it's, it's ideational, it's, it's conceptual, even a painting, it's as much an object as an idea. So I could sell everything in my house tomorrow, things I deeply, deeply am wedded to and care so much about, as long as there was something to replace it. So I use my art as an as a I mean intellectual in my case is a bit of an overstatement but my art is not just things in and of themselves they are like it's like living with a book three-dimensional that that you're living amongst the pages in the book and that's what art is to me it's an a thinking aid an experiential yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a painter myself, and uh, like painting is just so primal. It's, it's minus all the process, you know, like like photography or um, using a computer has just just making marks on the canvas and referring back to like Lascaux cave paintings. It's just you know. Freud would say it's like. I mean, he said people collect obsessively because they weren't toilet trained correctly, and you could say painting and dealing with this material is like making a shit drawing on your wall when you're five years old. But again, like, that's, that's, well, that's you, our first art supplies. You do have another Hoarders at Sotheby's scheduled for December? Or Number five. The fifth one. I mean, the No reserves. Hoarders. My loss is your gain because I need a liquidity event. And if I'm going to sell it, I draw in. Like, I have to self-sabotage. I have to expose myself. It's part of the game. I bring in like people that would never dream of going through the door. There's always an exhibit. This will be December 12th to the 18th. They'll see a broad cross section of work at Sotheby's headquarters on York and 71st. Well, you know, like from it's my so experience cool. visiting one of your hoarder shows is that I was able to learn about Daniel Reich. And my studio was on 21st and between 7th and 8th and his space was uh, 8th and 9th. So you had um, some like Rhode Island, like crocheted, like oh um, yes, yeah. from the, from uh, from Force Force Field, right? Exactly. That was yeah. the, that may have even been in the Whitney Biennial. It was in the Whitney Biennial, yeah. So I, I you know, the whole Kathy Grayson so. bought that from the. Oh, I get okay. Bryce Martin was an underbidder for one of my sales for Rene Ricard painting. Mm -hmm. I would say like a good percentage, more than half of the buyers were people that never entertained buying something from a 280 year old venerable auction house and that's so important to yeah. me because to this day even though like i have to say knock on wood that i'm blessed i'm so lucky to i mean people think of me as like having some sort of position in the art world i clawed my way to any opportunity that has ever come before me i i'm not saying i had to inordinately do anything more than anyone else but nothing was handed to me, not from day one, and it still isn't. I still don't know where my next dollar will come from. 
hopefully from Hoarder. During this show slash selling exhibition, I sold 20 things, which was great. Things that I didn't even know I had that I thought I would have written off. I was all but resigned to just let my kids dig through it with a shovel to see what they would never even know. Like I'm like an, I'm like an archaeologist going through the, the, the crap from my own life. And it's a vital thing because I have three children and they need to know what's there and what to do with it. I don't care if they sell every single thing I have before my body gets cold. I'm not, I have no interest. I'm giving, I've already given away my archives and some Vito Conchi installations to Bard for the preservation nice. of that stuff. And I just think it's my responsibility to do so. Right, so a percentage of your collection will end up in, uh, be donated to institutions? I don't, yeah, I don't really, I don't, I don't even have a will and I couldn't care less. It's not my problem. Mm. Put, stick me in a coffee table with formaldehyde and that's enough. I don't care, it's not my problem. Let them deal with it. I give away things that are unwieldy and that I don't think they would coexist with. Mm -hmm. The rest they could just use for their own purposes whatever they want to do. You ever watch that hoarder show, that reality show? Yes, I was watching it last night. It was grim. Well, I mean, you use the term hoarders, but these people, uh, aren't they compensating for like an Of course they are. They're miserable fucking psycho cases like me. Of course they are. But but it's so funny you say that because there was like, Last night, I, wa- I was watching it, this woman with garbage and food refuse. And it's funny because, like I say, I'm very, I don't, I have the kind of, I mean, I'm too old to say the punk word, but anarchistic, nihilistic. When I first was leaving London after 15 years, I literally made an art piece before the sale where I thought I was going to get buried by all my art. I had in my basement piled to the ceiling magazines, auction catalogs, art magazines, old car magazines, first edition books, all just fucking heaped together. And art, loads of art. And I literally, it took me months to dig. Because when I lost my son, we moved to New York, my kids moved to New York, and we needed an abrupt change. And that process was daunting. And and, uh, then I had this idea, like, why don't I just flog it? At that time before COVID, an online auction was the lowest on the totem pole for the auction houses couldn't give a rat's ass about online sales. It was not a profit center. During COVID, that became a billion dollar outlet to sell art and dumb dinosaur bones, which I think is repulsive that they don't go to museums and institutions. Anyway, so then I was with a friend of mine who was probably the only art loving nihilist at, at Sotheby's. And I said to him, he encouraged me to try to do it. He would help me. And then I said, let's call it the hoarder, which is a pejorative, terrible term for someone who, who, who is very materialistic. And to me, that fit the bill perfectly. I have a disease among many, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorder, and every kind of neuroses you can have. And that just seemed like a funny idea, a cool idea. And it was like taking the piss out of the art world. And that was right up my alley. No reserves. All of these things. I have people calling me like... This is one actor who I've since become a bit friendly with. I was on his podcast, Russell Tovey. And I'll never forget, before I even knew him, I posted like hoarder two, coming up, three, whatever it was. And he wrote, it's shameful that you're selling stuff with no reserve. You're harming the artist. And I was like, fuck you. Like all of a sudden, art has always been in the corner of culture. Nobody gave, nobody cared about art, contemporary art. It never, I did a book, part of which is in this exhibition. I did a book called Jasper Who and I interviewed 100 people from Harlem to Wall Street. Do you know who Matthew Barney is? Do you know who Jasper Johns is? That's where the title came from, Jasper Who. Do you know who Warhol is? Does art have a role in your life? Do you ever think about art? And some of the answers were just extraordinary. Like art is, you could, art could be the way you walk down the street. Art could be cutting hair. Art is like I said, like anything with passion and love. That, for me, is my whole career. Perseverance, tenacity, passion, and love for what I do gives meaning to my life, saved me when I was on the verge of, of breakdown, and that's it. So, so for me, the hoarder is sharing. It's, I need the money. I'm going to be very frank with you. I'm always, I was born broke, and I'll die broke, but I'll have a lot of junk. And it's a way to make a living without having to capitulate and compromise, getting a, the J word, a job, which I'm unemployable. But I could always, I never, I don't, like the reason I thought my writing did well or reached an audience after many decades of doing it 
was because I don't, I'm not beholden to anyone for anything. I have enough stuff to sell piecemeal for the rest of my life, more or less. And then I don't have to rely on, on, on kowtowing to anyone or anything. And that gives me a lot of freedom in life to do what I need to do. Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one long fucking sentence for an hour, but you're very patient and you're very kind with the thoroughness of your inquiries. Yeah, thank you. And, um, I mean, you do introduce uh, the, the element of humor and um, humility and um, in, your, in your work. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're so prolific and, you know, <laughs> wish you the best of luck with your future endeavors. You're very so, generous with your time and your consideration. Thank you so much. All right. And if I can help you in any way, you've shut your gallery. You did some really wonderful shows. We communicated about one of them with Hugh Crowley. Hugh Crowley, yeah. Great, I think really cool show. I just love that. That was really a tough and brutal show. And it was really interesting. And I think that kind of... You shouldn't just find another space and make your own work. Maybe it's an opportunity to focus more on your own work. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, too. Um, and I think you also had purchased, like, a Louis Vent um, yes. drawing a vehicle. Yeah, as you do love vehicles. So thank you to Noah Becker for uh, allowing us to conduct this uh, second He's interview. been very supportive. We've worked together on and off for almost four years now, and mm -hmm. we need more independent voices in the art world that are non-pegged to obvious things. All right, I agree. So um, thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody.